All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, you are in the right place. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. We are back. This is Adario Strange here with... Big Song. And this week, there are a number of goodies, treats, uh, various and sundry uh, nuggets of futurism to discuss. Uh, but first, we want to kind of get like dive right into entertainment. Uh, some of the, the movies that are science fiction movies that are on deck coming soon. Uh, what do you got for us, Vic? We got a really cool take on the zombie genre called The Girl with All the Gifts. And I'm, I'm saying gifts, not gifts. But uh, this is a cool film. Uh, the trailer just came out. It's from Warner Brothers Pictures UK. It's basically, if you think about the near future, humanity's been totally wiped out from a mutated fungal disease. And I'll, I'll let that, like... Mutated fungal disease. Mutated. This is is what all um, all the coverage was saying. Mutated fungal disease. And it actually eradicates free will. And the only people who are kind of immune to it are a small group of children. And one of those children is this young girl. And if you look at the trailer, it's really cool because she decides that she's going to save her teacher, played by... Gemma, oh God, Arterton. I think it's Arterton. Yeah. Yes, uh, Gemma Arterton, and basically, it turns out that this girl might be the key to a cure for humanity. And it's interesting because it looks like these zombies are not sentient, but these kids are kind of zombies who are sentient. Because what I didn't mention is that the kids still hunger for flesh. Oh, yeah. You see that in the trailer. That's not a spoiler. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like sentient child zombies. And it's got a really cool cast. It's got Glenn Close in it. And it's actually directed by this guy called, um, this guy named, not called, uh, Colm McCarthy. And he is the guy behind Peaky Blinders, which is a pretty cool Netflix TV show. Have you seen Peaky Blinders? I've seen a couple of episodes. It was... You know, it was like during the time where I was like, man, why is everything so heavy? I need to look at and watch some like lighter stuff or a little more mindless stuff. So yeah. then I, I kind of like dropped off. But I think Peaky Blinders had like really great production quality and great acting. So, yeah. So I watched the first season of Peaky Blinders. Um, it was one of those. I just need something to zone out on. So let me just check this out. Let me binge on this. I don't know. We got, we're not going to get deep into it. It's not science fiction, but just it's a very, like you said, the production quality is really, really, really good. But I don't know. It just, there, I, for me, there wasn't much there. It didn't, you know, I didn't find the writing, the plot, the stories to be particularly interesting. But all that said, if this if that guy is behind the girl with all the gifts, then I'm encouraged because it you know it's at least going to look good and you know you yeah. know you'll be kind of transported into this new world. Yeah, the the trailer was really interesting for me because I, it threw me off. I didn't realize I was watching a zombie film. Right. I thought right? it was like it looked like these were like kids with psychic abilities. Is that what you yeah. got? I, it was strange because uh, the young girl, she's played by Senia Nanua, and she 
like the trailer pans in on her waking up and she's like, oh, well, you know, got to get ready. Got to put on my inmate uniform because these kids are dressed in like orange jumpsuits that look like inmate uniforms. And she's like, oh, got to get my wheelchair out for the day. Let me strap into the wheelchair. And, you know, I was like, why are they strapping kids who can walk into wheelchairs? And then, oh, uh, right. you see it. Because we've seen so many zombie movies and zombie TV shows with The Walking Dead that... As, as a genre, sometimes I worry it's getting a little played out, but this looks like a really interesting and fresh take on it. So I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, me too. Me too. It looks pretty good. So next, there's another trailer. The second, I believe this is the second trailer that has come out for, is it HBO or Showtime? HBO. Yeah, it's HBO's uh, take on Westworld, the 1970s film uh, about a resort or a series of resorts that allow you to interact with humanoid, uh, with androids, you know, that are in humanoid form, robots in humanoid form, uh, in a various settings, ancient Rome, the Old West, uh, barbarian times, and Westworld is the Old West version of it. And the 70s version starred Yul Brenner as, in my opinion, the first Terminator. You know, a lot of people know about, you know, uh, the Terminator films with Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's kind of like this unstoppable, you know, robot, you know, that just chases after this human protagonist. And no matter what the, the protagonist does to get away, the, the robot just kind of like keeps trudging along at the same <laughs> pace. And it's like this unstoppable force. And that's kind of looked at as this like Terminator thing in, in pop culture. But that really started with... Uh, Westworld and Yul Brenner. It's really chilling. Like, I mean, if you kind of like, at least in current times, if you, you know, take away the fact that the effects aren't like top notch and you just kind of like transport yourself into the world of that original film and just take it for what it is, it's really chilling. Like Yul Brenner as this robot who just like walks throughout all the, and they, and they walk through the different environments, you know, through, you know, mm-hmm. ancient Rome or whatever. And he just, he never, he almost never runs. He just, he's just walking and he just, they never fails to catch up with a human. Um, mm-hmm. so anyway, so this is the fresh modern take on that. And this second trailer that came out, uh, this week was, it, it revealed a lot more. So did, did you see it? And what did you think? Well, when I saw it, I was actually a little confused as to what was going on. And I thought it was actually virtual reality, some sort of virtual reality thing. Maybe it's because we've been talking about, like we talked about VR in the last uh, episode. And we I think we've just on and off been talking about VR in general. And in the trailer, you see, uh, what's her name? Evan Rachel Wood's character, and she's in kind of a sciencey looking lab, and she looks pretty beat up or something. But you also see her in, like, a lush Grand Canyon-esque type landscape. So I was like, is this virtual reality? What's happening? And bef- this was before I looked up anything about the Westworld series. So I was like, is this a virtual reality thing? What's happening here? Because you're seeing, like, Thandi Newton's character as well in this, like, futuristic looking landscape but they're also in the wild west so i thought it was 
a real VR type thing. But then I looked it up and I don't know. Well, yeah, but there are no VR headsets. So I'm just I'm curious why you thought it was VR. Maybe maybe I'm just VR obsessed or maybe it's because we were talking about Magic Leap and how they'll just project right, things right, onto right. your eyes. So like maybe it's a futuristic VR that doesn't need headsets. One of the most interesting um, differences between this and the original is that it kind of gives a hint that these robots or androids uh, are not only sentient, but kind of have like uh, more personality than the original Westworld. Because at one point in the new trailer, um, I think one of the humans uh, asks uh, the robot something along the lines of like, you know, what is your purpose in life or what is what question do you have in life or something like that? And the robot answers something along mm-hmm. the lines of, you know, to find out my maker or do you remember what he said to meet my maker or something like that? And then right after he says that he gives this kind of mocking smirk, you know, like directed toward the human, which was chilling. Like, it's just like, Oh my God. So I mean, because we often think about uh, the whole robot, you know, the singularity, the robot apocalypse or whatever as being this kind of cold clinical destruction of the human race, if it were to come to pass. But this is kind of like adding like this sinister component to the whole thing. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, in, in a way, I didn't realize that some of the cast were playing robots, if that makes sense, because they look so human. It kind of also reminded me of Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, where the Cylons don't look like tin metal cans anymore. They look like humans for all intents and purposes. And what that I thought that added a really interesting layer to the reboot, and maybe that'll add another layer to the Westworld movie. I don't know. Okay, so and do we know when that's coming? I think it's scheduled to premiere. Yes, it's scheduled to premiere in October. And so, speaking of uh, humans that aren't human that may in fact live forever, we have anti-aging news. Yes, we do. So basically, there's going to be a planned clinical study using a compound called nicotinamide mononucleotide, known as NMN, NMN, that's like a mouthful, Keio University, which is a really prestigious university in Japan, and Washington University in St. Louis, they're going to do a joint clinical study to test whether or not humans can use this compound and whether that can like slow the aging process And they've done other studies with mice, and they found that it was able to reverse age-linked slowdowns in metabolism or your eyesight. So they don't know whether it'll work in humans, but it's done really well in mice so far. So this would be kind of cool. And the interesting thing is that they're trying to make it into, like, something that you could put into your food. So it's not necessarily like a pill that you're going to take. Yeah, I, I saw this story and I immediately dubbed the uh, compound. Compound X, 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 X. Compound X. Uh, Eureka! It will <laughs> give us everlasting life. Compound X. So yeah, so hopefully that will move from the uh, extending the life of mice stage to humans. And then we will all live forever and there will be endless war. Yay. <laughs> Wow, that was so optimistic. Now who's the Spocky and Um, And so moving on, um, we had something that we discovered or that you discovered. io9 uh, put together a really cool uh, list of celebrity endorsements from science fiction authors uh, of the past. So we often kind of look at, um, 
you know, there's been a big promotional push from the X-Men uh, Apocalypse movie where you see Quicksilver was in like a cable ad. And I think there was like, I, I may be wrong on this, but I feel like there was a pizza ad. There's just been like a lot of commercialization of a lot of these films. And, you know, some people kind of look at it as all oh, these, you know, these actors are selling out the franchise. Well, this is a great story because uh, it kind of highlights that, you know, well, the creators of some of this science fiction material actually get into the endorsement game. And it's not like puny science fiction creators. We're talking Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, some of, uh, Stephen King, Neil Gaiman. These are all people who have done, uh, well, they've basically, the headline of the io9 article is uh, says that they've shilled random products. And actually, one of my favorite images that they put into this list is this picture of Isaac Asimov doing a bunch of old school Mad Men-esque style ads for Radio Shack. And he's in it. And he's got this forced smile on his face. He looks like he's slightly dying inside in his eyes. And he's holding up this like kind of calculator type thing. And his quotes were, the quote that they have from him in huge letters is, a few years ago, the idea of a computer you could put in your pocket was just science fiction. And that made me laugh so hard. Because we all have smartphones, which are basically computers that we put in our pocket. Right. It was, well, what are the other um, endorsements? Can you go down the list of like the writer and the, the product or the company? Arthur C. Clarke. They actually used his voice in a BMW uh, commercial very recently. And he was also in a commercial for Omni Magazine, which was a science fiction magazine back in the day. And uh, Stephen King. There were multiple multiple um, commercials with Stephen King in them. One of them was this pretty goofy Amex commercial where he like, there's dry ice coming out of the places and he's like, I am Stephen King. I'd never leave home without my Amex card because it's very scary. Ooh. And then he disappears back into the fog. Another one that's a lot more recent was a Stephen King Watson commercial. And for those who don't know, Watson is a cognitive technology developed by IBM, which is basically their, I guess their take on machine learning, and AI. And he's just talking to Watson. So Asimov was the face of Radio Shack for a while. But it was funny because they wanted him to uh, promote the Tandy computer, which was kind of a, a way for him to like abandon the typewriter. And he was apparently not thrilled about doing that. But he did it anyway, because, you know, got to get paid, got to hustle. Them numbers up. So, yeah. And yeah, and, and this whole tradition of like people coming from kind of like an authentic, be it science fiction or real science background, promoting real pro uh, products has not uh, stopped. You, we have uh, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson out there, you know, showing his face in various, you know, television products. And I don't mean Cosmos. I mean, he's actually like become become something of like a little bit of a character in, in it's a movie he was recently in. The name is escaping me right now. You have Michio Kaku, who has definitely promoted, you mm -hmm. know, some products. Uh, I, I know for sure he did something for Toyota, but I know he's done some other stuff. You have uh, Stephen Hawking who was in, um, I believe it was a British commercial. I can't remember the product, but that's Stephen Hawking, you know, uh, Brief History of Time and, you know, the guy who like talks about super string theory. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it's not stopping. You got to get those checks. So moving on, um, there was another story that uh, came into view this week 
involving, once again, Star Trek. This is, as we've been mentioning for the last couple of weeks, this is the 50th anniversary of the Star Trek uh, franchise. And so, you know, predictably, there'll be a lot of Star Trek uh, news this year. And you found something that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So Chris Pine, who plays Captain Kirk in the new rebooted J.J. Abrams' uh, Star Trekiverse, he had an interview with a magazine from the U.K. called SFX. I think that's what it's called. Uh, I don't know if they pronounce it like SFX, but it's <laughs> it's SFX. Um, he talked to them, and he was basically saying, uh, well, actually, I have the quote here. He says, you can't make a cerebral Star Trek in 2016. It just wouldn't work in today's marketplace. So he was basically saying you can't have a cerebral, meaty, intellectual topic without wrapping it in a layer of karate chops and hoo-hahs. Karate chops and hoo-hahs. So, and do you agree with this? Well, well, first of all, whether or not you agree, what was the general uh, Trekkie reaction to this statement from Mr. Pine? When I was looking in the comments of this article, there were actually some people who were like, that is total BS. And then there were other people who actually agreed with him. So it was a little interesting, but I think overall most people would really rail against that because, you know, in general, one of the huge criticisms against Abrams take on Star Trek was that it eliminated that spirit of what made people love Star Trek in the first place. And I personally don't agree with Chris Pine because my, uh, my take on Star Trek into darkness was that it was too much action. And I think I mentioned this before, but I got so much whiplash because Khan that like he even acknowledges that Star Trek Into Darkness has a lot of questions about, you know, um, blowing away planets or just these themes that are very relevant in today's society. And I just think we didn't get to get into any of them because it was too busy chasing Benedict Cumberbatch, kicking Spock in the face, people just going whiz-bang every which way. So I, I actually think it takes away when you don't have the pauses to actually reflect on the things that make the movie, you know, make, make it more than just a popcorn-crunching blockbuster. Yeah, I, I agree. And But before I get into why I agree, I just want to say, like, this is kind of why whatever the property is, whatever the science fiction franchise, film, TV show is, I'm always fascinated when interviewers talk to actors about a show or a movie. They're not the writers. They're not the people <laughs> creating this stuff. They are many of many actors will tell you they are the tools. They are the instruments for the people conceptualizing these universes. So asking Chris Pine, an actor, uh, and I don't say that like, you know, as any kind of pejorative where I'm just saying, you know, he's a, he, he, he's a tool. He's, he's an instrument of, of the director, of the writer. So, I mean, he's if you ask, tool. no, well, no, he's not a tool. He's not. <laughs> actually, from what I hear, he's actually one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. Like that's actually like, if you kind of read a bunch of interviews, you know, I've heard Chris Pine has like an amazing, funny. uh, reputation as like a super nice guy, but actors in general are tools of directors and the writers. And so whenever someone asks, like, like, so when you watch, um, what is the Walking Dead after show? Talking Dead. So, you know, sometimes they'll have actors on and I'm fascinated. I've watched a few of the Talking Dead shows and I'm fascinated when 
they don't necessarily like I, I understand if you ask a, an actor, what was your motivation or how did you get mm-hmm. into character or how did you relate to the character's, you know, journey and backstory I, that I get. But I don't understand when you ask them plot mm-hmm. points and what's going to happen with the character. What I mean, and this is what happens on Talking Dead. They ask the char- the, the actor, well, what do you think is going to happen? And the, and the actor will actually answer, well, I think what will happen is this. And, and I believe because this happens, that will. And I'm thinking, you're not the writer. You're not the director. Yeah. Why are you answering these questions? So Chris Pine, God love him. Sure, he's a nice guy, but I, you know, he's an actor. It's uh, to me, I guess when you let's just take his uh, counterpart, uh, William Shatner, Captain, mm-hmm. the original Captain Kirk, or the original long-term Captain Kirk. I mean, again, he has the background and kind of like he's he's been in this franchise or connected to this franchise for decades. He's worked with a ton of different writers, a ton of different directors. So there's a little bit more there in terms of, you know, if you ask him a question about the plot. You know, actually, um, this reminds me a couple of months ago, or maybe several months ago, I was watching a video of George Takei, who played the original Hikaru Sulu, uh, watching the trailer for the upcoming Star Trek movie. And they asked him what he thought. And he, you know, in his very George Takei voice was like, I don't think that this represents the true nature of Star Trek. And, you know, something along those lines about how it was just, to him, it looked like just another action film. So that's kind of like my beef with J.J. Abrams, who's the producer of Star Trek, the Star Trek movie series now, along with the Star Wars movie series. I feel like he wouldn't dare play with the legacy, the, the, uh, the lore of Star Wars, the way he's toying with Star Trek. Like he, he, he pays homage and he honors the source material. There's no alternate universe. Uh, oh, we're going to get rid of this character or we're going to make, we're going to change how this character. No, he's like very true to the Star Wars universe. Well, I think George Lucas with the prequels, he kind of veered off and messed with the mythos that everyone was into with the midichlorians and the explanation of the force. And there was such a visceral fan reaction to it with the prequels that with the with the new trilogy with The Force Awakens, he was kind of like, and I'm going to make it as close to the original series as humanly possible. I'm going to pay so much homage to it. So it might just be kind of him running and overcorrecting in the other direction. Okay, and before we get off the Star Trek topic, so uh, listeners who are following the Mars Magazine podcast, as you should, uh, subscribe on iTunes, uh, Stitcher. Do it. uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Um, You'll know that we talked to the author of Treconomics last week, and we talked about, like, how how and if the Star Trek economy would work in the real world. And so some real news just happened, like as we were recording the podcast this week, which is the Brexit vote happened. We, dun, dun, dun. Can you, do you want to break down what that is? So basically, Britain had a referendum uh, to decide whether or not they were going to stay in the European Union. Union. Hence the term Brexit, Britain exit, Brexit, because apparently we can't say British exit anymore. Everything has to be into a portmanteau. And it basically spells out a lot of instability 
for the region and the world in terms of financial markets, political stability. And I think what you're getting at is, you know, it's kind of a big punch to the gut and the idea that we could have a one world government. The EU was in some sense, at least from my vantage point, this kind of baby step toward a one world government, as you see, like in the Star Trek Federation. But there's been a lot of griping uh, within the UK that, you know, they didn't have enough control over their own government, you know, over their own economy. Uh, there were a lot of gripes about, you know, immigration policies. And so in some respects, I, I feel like this. And so the vote happened and the vote was to leave the European Union. And uh, from what I'm understanding, it's not going to be immediate. It's like the actual technicalities will take a couple of years. But they're saying that this is essentially a done deal. Like this is what's going to happen now. And now, oh, yeah. well, and now the prediction is that other uh, countries in Europe uh, will follow suit and will, and it will lead to like this breakup of the Euro European Union. And yeah, it, it's troubling because it also kind of, it, you know, it provides a possible destabilizing effect on a political level beyond yeah. economics. Well, and also just beyond the EU, there's, you know, um, if you haven't paid close attention to how the polls and the breakdown went, you know, I, Northern Ireland and um, Scotland, they wanted to stay in, in, in the EU and they were pretty like adamant about that. And now there's talk, at least in these preliminary stages, now there's talk about Scotland wanting to leave the UK to break up that that union of four countries. So, I don't know, maybe this is the end of the UK as we know it. That might be too premature to say, but it's not like the US where we had all these, uh, where we have 50 states and a central, you know, uh, American identity. I just don't think Europe had that. You had like very strong French identity, very strong uh, German identity. And of course the Brits have their own identity and, you know, they didn't have an easy time forging a new central European identity. And if that's the case, then, you know, one world government, like in Star Trek, can you do that without a really strong unifying identity as humans? Like we talk about the future a lot and, you know, the future of science, technology, space travel, living on other planets, but like standing in the way of a lot of progress, technological science, either way is, you know, hum it's humans, it's, it's politics, it's, you know, our own human uh, preferences, failings. Um, but again, you know, this is getting away from this global uh, world government that I think, you know, many of us, you know, wherever we're from, I think on some level, we kind of assume that that's going to happen. Like, mm -hmm. you know, at least, you know, far into the future, you know, whether we're talking 50 years or, you know, 200 years, I think in the back of everyone's everyone's mind, we kind of assume that's going to happen. But here we are at 2016 and it looks like uh, Europe is about to, you know, fracture. I, I had my misgivings about the strength of the central EU government. And it just never seemed to me from people who I talked to that they, you know, I have European friends and it never seemed like they were would say, like you and I would say, we're American. We're from New York, but we're American. And I just never saw people, my European friends go, oh, I'm European. I'm from such and such country but I'm European. I just never saw that identity. And it was just kind of interesting to see whether the EU would pan out. But I was always a little bit, a little bit cynical that it would, that it would 
stay, you know, forever into the future. And so the main topic we wanted to talk about this week was in the area of sing of the singularity. Let's start with a robot. The Spot Mini Robot. Did you did you see the trailer or the trailer? The, the trailer. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is not a trailer. This is a real video that actually happened. This was not the work of uh, visual effects. Did you see the video of the Spot Mini Robot? I did see the video of the Spot Mini, and it was well. It was very interesting to say the least. Yes, yeah, so the Spot Mini is a robot created by Boston Dynamics. Uh, robotics company, a very real robotics company. Um, it weighs uh, 55 pounds. And it, it visually, I would say it looks like a cross between uh, a dog, like a large dog and an ostrich. And it has like a little head that looks, <laughs> it looks like a little dinosaur head somehow. It does, it, I, I was thinking like a cross between a dog and a giraffe. There's a video that's out there that's on YouTube of the Spot Mini uh, walking through a house, walking up steps, uh, grabbing objects with its mouth. Um, there's another instance where it shows it, uh, walking down a hallway and very humorously, they put a bunch of banana peels on the floor <laughs> and it slips on the ban banana peels and it gets oh, itself dear. up. Um, there's another part where it's, uh, shown, uh, interacting with a human. Loading a dishwasher? Yeah, loading a dishwasher. It, I mean, I, real talk, I watch these kind of videos all the time. I write about this stuff. This is one of the few times I saw one of these videos. And in real time, before the video was over, I'm literally out loud saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my mm -hmm. God. I, that's how freaked out I was about this. It was quite freaky. And I don't know if you remember this one part. It just was like dancing kind of, well, dancing. It was kind of twerking. <laughs> twerking. <laughs> it was just like moving around and just, it looked like it was twer twerking because it kept going like down and up with its derriere. And that's that's the like, uh, bestiality mode. That's uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you joke, but for real. Yeah, um, hey, you know, Westworld, you know. What? <laughs> oh yeah, no. Um, <laughs> hey, there. I, I'm sure there'll be a bestiality mode for some of these things, unfortunately. Yeah. But then, you know, hey, good thing. Good thing is, it won't actually be bestiality. It'll be some sort of robot sex. So. Well, you know what? Actually, like besides the twerking section of the video that made me go like oh <laughs> this is bizarre but um there was uh the part where it was dishwashing uh, after it loaded the dish into the dishwasher which was or it was a dish or a cup whatever whatever it loaded into the dishwasher that was impressive enough but then like it reached um there was like a towel and a dish on top of the towel and an empty soda can on top of the dish and it reached for the for the soda can, and I was like, "Oh, what's it gonna do? Is it gonna put the soda can in the in the dishwasher? Haha, ha, that would be funny." But no, it it was able to recognize that the can is not something that needs to be washed, and it goes and it throws it away in in the garbage bin. And I was like, "Oh crap!" Kill it with fire. This thing was this thing was too <laughs> realistic. I mean, no, I'm watching this video, and I really thought it, it felt like I was watching. This is one of those few uncanny valley moments where I thought I was mm -hmm. watching special effects on a science fiction movie in a science fiction movie. And I had to kind of just keep reminding myself, no, this is real. This is real. This is actually happening. And I mean, like, 
We're there. Yeah. We're, it's, I mean, the, the other thing I thought about, and particularly like when I was trying to figure out like what it looked like in terms of its form, its shape, was it's an interesting choice that they made to show us the robotic, you know, exoskeleton or the mechanics mm-hmm. of it instead of covering it in fur. You know, they could have very easily covered it in like this faux fur and given it a face. But I think two things. A, they're trying to like impress because on some Mm -hmm. level, if it were covered in fur and kind of given some sort of animal like look, it might not be as impressive because you it would kind of take away that layer of robotics. And you would you might not think about the robotics and you might just think, oh, well, look at this animatronic dog or you know large dog that they have oh that's cute that they have it doing this or that so by showing us the robotics just the metal skeleton of this thing uh it kind of like reinforces look this is you know look at the advances we're making these are robotics but the other thing the the other reason that they may have done it was to not freak us out you know maybe Hmm. maybe it would have looked really good point you know maybe it would have looked too realistic i mean because that thing was moving very smoothly it was. And I kept looking at its joints and the way that the joints were moving very fluidly. And I was just like, holy crap, hold up. Like, I think it's interesting because there are animals with joints that look like that. Actually, mostly maybe insects that with joints that look like that. And I was like, oh, they looked at how real animals move. They studied those joints and they like translated it into a machine form. That's pretty creepy. Yeah, and when I th- I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking about the very first version, um, I can't remember what the name of it was, but there was an earlier version of this robot from Boston Dynamics that uh, popped up uh, some years ago. Um, I feel like five to seven years ago, and the advances they've made from then to now are pretty significant, and that's not a lot of time. I mean, we're not talking 20 years ago. We're talking, you know, inside of a decade. They have a smaller, more agile version that can now interact with humans and delicately pick up dishes. And so now I'm just like, I'm fast forwarding. I'm, I'm thinking like if, you know, assuming we don't get into a Brexit, uh, you know, powered world war and we're all like, uh, you know, hoarding gold chips or something, uh, you know, in the near future, assuming we, you know, technological, technological advances continue apace. I, I'm thinking, okay, so what does that robot look like in just, I don't know, 15, 20 years? I mean, the fluidity of movement. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, it's inevitable that you would make a humanoid version. Doesn't doesn't Boston Dynamics have kind of humanoid robots? Well, I think I, I don't know if this is f- definitely from Boston Dynamics. It might be a partnership between Boston Dynamics and um, a government agency, but I think it's called the Atlas Robot, and yeah. I think that's the humanoid version. Um, I could be wrong, but I believe that's uh, the other project. Considering the amount of robot abuse in that Atlas video, like for, for if you don't know the Atlas Robot by name. Like it was around on the internet a few months ago, and he poor poor robot was just trying to pick up a box, and this dude with the broom is just knocking the box out of its hand, pushing the box away when it bends down to pick it up. And you know, in in the spot mini video, we have the banana peel dude's just trying to walk around, be happy. There's like yeah, you know, all, all these like tests that show you know how the robot recovers from insults and and accidents. That's fine. You know what? How about you show us more uh, examples of how it won't kill a human? 
You know, how about put like a little porcelain fake baby in its hands and have it tossed that in the air a few times or or feed it a bottle. Show me some safety measures that should like like assure me that this thing won't like, you know, grab me by the neck in five years and choke me out. You know, also also. Why are we having video evidence so that when the singularity happens and robots are studying why, you know, they should overthrow their human oppressors? Like, we're just basically documenting our robot abuse and torture. I mean, we're just teaching them. We're just teaching them. They understand. <laughs> Let's just stick on, on the singularity uh, topic and move on to SoftBank. So mm -hmm. the other thing we noticed this week was uh, SoftBank's uh, founder and CEO – Masayoshi's son, uh, SoftBank is based in Japan. Uh, Masayo Masayoshi's son uh, recently had a situation in his company where the person who was slated to kind of succeed him as the CEO uh, abruptly departed. And so he basically, you know, held like a, a quick meeting uh, with the public to kind of reassure investors and the public, you know, in general uh, that everything was okay. He was still CEO and, uh, you know, everything would, you know, just continue as it is. But, uh, some of the reasons he gave for sticking around were pretty interesting. And I will just read his quote before we interpret what he said. Uh, quote, this is Masayoshi son, uh, Japan based SoftBank, SoftBank known for, uh, cell phone, uh, internet access. They own Sprint in the U.S. Um, yeah, they own. Well, I, I, is that deal well, done? I think they're they're they have a bid in. Is that is that done? Is that a done well, deal? I always see them. I always see them in connection with Sprint. So maybe maybe I'm wrong to say that they own it. But well, I know. Maybe, yeah, I know I, they're they're the they're definitely a bidder. They're like the main bidder. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that deal's done. Maybe it is. Um, they also came up with the Pepper robot, which is like this kind of you know a human assist robot. Uh, so this is Masayoshi son talking about why he needs to stick around as CEO. Quote, I think we are about to see the biggest paradigm shift in human history. The singularity is coming. Artificial intelligence will overtake human beings, not just in terms of knowledge, but in terms of intelligence. This will happen this century. There will be a world without language barriers. We will be able to peek into the future. Human beings will be able to live in a more prosperous age. Looking into the next 30 years, our focus will no doubt be on AI, artificial intelligence, smart robots, and the Internet of Things. I still have unfinished business regarding the singularity. I want to continue for at least another five years. Jeez. I still have unfinished business regarding the singularity. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and let me just go back to the beginning where he said, the singularity is coming. It's coming. Jeez. And, you know, um, for people who aren't familiar with Matsuyoshi Sun, he's a dude who is fluent in English. I went to a press conference with him back when I was in Japan. And, I mean, he's got a slight accent, but this is a dude who went and studied in uh, UC Berkeley for college. This is very important that you bring that up. I'm so glad you bring that up because often people will assume that something was lost in translation. Oh, well, maybe he was speaking in Japanese and you kind of you're exaggerating what he said. And no, you're confirming that, you know, <laughs> like, you know, this is something he's been thinking about for a really long time. And he's doing it in English and he's talking to Western media. He's not shy about articulating these these concepts. So, yeah. And 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 he's uh he's not the first to bring up the singularity. We also have Elon Musk, uh the founder mm -hmm. of SpaceX and Tesla, 
who also often brings up the singularity and, uh, you know, talks about working to make sure humans don't suffer because of it. Um, Ray Kurzweil is often, you know, quoted talking about this. Ray Kurzweil, uh, he now works for Google. So none of the people we're mentioning are crackpots in the <laughs> woods in some wooden cabin, you know, typing on a typewriter and, and, and then, you know, mailing their missives to an assistant somewhere in the city so they can be uploaded to some, you know, listserv or, you know, some chat room. These are like real people engaged in big business. And so when the CEO of one of the biggest tech companies in Japan and in Asia cites the singularity as the reason why he needs to stick around, you know, it's it's significant. So two things. First of all, his math is a little off because uh, Ray Kurzweil uh says that the singularity will light and Ray Kurzweil, who is like, you know, again, often quoted uh, about the singularity and, and he talks about it and he and he's known as being a great predictor. You can like look his track record up online. He's a great predictor of technological advances. He has a, an amazing track record of accurately, you know, within a couple of years predicting what's what will happen with tech and science. And he believes that it will be within the next 30 years. So I don't know how Masayoshi's son thinks five more years at the helm will somehow uh, inoculate SoftBank, you know, from the singularity. But the fact that he even brought this up is fascinating. Now, we, you know, we, again, as we always say, we both lived in Japan. What do you think the reaction in Japan is uh, or will be to this major CEO bringing up the singularity as part of his reason for hanging out for a few more years. I, you know, I think there's probably some apathy there. I don't think people pay attention quite like it's very strange for, for a country that has so much in terms of technology. And, you know, we think that at least the perception of Japan is that they're very advanced technologically and they are. Uh, for lots of different things. Um, I, I don't think the average Japanese person is going to be all like, oh my God, robots, singularity, we doomed. But I also think that's a cultural thing because in Japan, the way they view robots is more of like, a, and you can see it with SoftBank's Pepper robot, where it's like an assist robot and he's like super, or he or she, I don't know if that robot has a gender, uh, is super cute. It's meant to look non-threatening. I think one of the more famous robots that you see out of like these shows in Japan is a little seal, a uh, robotic seal that Paro. they use. Yes, Paro, that's his name. Um, that they use to uh, help dementia patients, just like comfort them. Paro is so cute. And like Asimo, if you ever get a chance to go to Japan uh, in Odaiba, there's the meat icon or the museum of the future. And they do these really cute demonstrations with Asimo. And he's like this little astronaut looking dude. And he'll go like, hello, my name is Asimo. So that's their view of robots. So if that's their view of robots, I have to think that they're not super scared by the singularity. Whereas here, you know, we have Terminator movies. We have <laughs> Skynet is like, <laughs> well, that no, but that is, that is interesting that the culture kind of determines how humans look at robots because you're right. You know, uh, if you look at even as far back with Japan, as far back as Astro Boy, you know, robots are looked at as cute, as helpers, as saviors. 
And, you know, it's kind of it falls in line with this kind of community oriented, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, respectful, deferential kind of uh, culture in Japan. Whereas, you know, in in America, it's all about kick ass and, you know, be on guard and watch your six, you know, and, you know, just just and, and, and thus the Terminator. Like, can you imagine if the Terminator was Doraemon, who, if you don't know, is like a robotic cat who had his ears eaten off by tiny robotic mice. He's got like a pouch in his robotic cat stomach that he pulls stuff out of. And so by talking about the singularity, on some level, it seems like Masayoshi's son is helping to bring the the notion of the singularity, which, you know, many years ago seemed like a crackpot theory. He's, he's helping to bring it into the mainstream. You, you have uh, Elon Musk talking about the singularity. You have, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking, uh, there's even at Oxford University uh, in the UK, there's an entire effort uh, organized around protecting, safeguarding humans against some future peril from uh, robots and artificial intelligence systems. And so this is all becoming a very real thing as we see, you know, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence improve year after year. And now we see videos like the spot mini robot. I mean, I think if you have a spot mini robot, let's say version, you know, 10 of, you know, from what we've seen today, you know, if you guys out there uh, want to take a look, you can just uh, it's all one word spot S P O T mini, like small one word. And you just, you know, search for that on YouTube and you'll see the video that scares you to death. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just imagine version 10 of the spot mini robot with advanced AI let's say Watson, whatever, 10.0 or whatever. And, you know, this is all connected to the cloud. You begin to realize that, you know, these concerns about the singularity and and our relationship to uh, beings that aren't organic, this is stuff that maybe we should think about. You know, maybe this isn't going to be a sinister relationship or, you know, where we need to worry about all this stuff. But, yeah, whether it is or isn't, you know, like what, however it plays out, I, I think uh, the people thinking about this, like Elon Musk and the people at Oxford University, I, it's beginning to look like they're not just reading too many science fiction novels. It's beginning mm. to look like perhaps they have a point. And just because Masayoshi's son is in Asia and, you know, we kind of don't hear this talk coming out of Asia that often – that doesn't change the fact that, you know, this guy is one of the biggest tech leaders on the planet. He's definitely a visionary. Um, some people in Japan describe him as the Steve Jobs of Japan, uh, just because of the huge influence that he's had in transforming. Like, he's the guy who struck a deal and brought the iPhone to Japan when Japan previously was a place that was very closed off to Western cell phone technologies. So he brought, like, almost single-handedly that there. And so he's definitely a guy who can bring that conversation into that part of the world, into their mainstream consciousness as well. So, I mean, if you had to place your bets, you, your your bet is that it will be more of a a touchy-feely uh, helper relationship as opposed to a Terminator situation? I want to hope for the best, but we should prepare for the worst. So I want to hope that we have a touchy-feely relationship, but not that kind of touchy-feely relationship. Well, wait, now, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I, I'm not entirely certain of what your view on the singularity as a theory is. Like, what do you think about that theory? You know, in the short time that I've been following AI, 
I think the it's kind of obvious that our uh, progress in machine learning and deep learning and all that sort of stuff, it's getting exponentially faster and better. And if that's the case, then it's not something that we can ignore. But at the same time, I'm not sold on the idea that maybe it's because of my time in Japan. I'm not sold on the idea that they'll want to kill us right away. <laughs> not right away. Okay. Not right away. At least I think we're not talking about the ethics of the situation. How as humans do we, we're terrible at treating other humans well. So if we're going to create an autonomous, you know, artificial life form, if we're not clear on like a code of ethics or a code of morals, I, you know, I think we will have a Terminator situation and we'll all live to regret it. But if we do take the, take the time to lay down a code of ethics, then, you know, I think it's possible that we could have at least a good symbiotic relationship. So symbiotic, not master slave. I think if we may get into a master slave thing, you know, eventually they're going to be like, F this. Who do these meat bags think they are? Meat bags. We can do, yeah, meat bags. <laughs> okay. These, uh, these meat bags, who do they think they are? I can computate at like bajillions of digits in a fraction of a second. Bajillions, again, this. that scientific term. Yes, bajillions. Yeah. Uh, okay, fafillion then. Fafillion, <laughs> <Fafillion, laughs> okay. Quadribajillion, whatever, you know, like many, 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 many digits are like incredibly complex computations in fractions of a second. They can do so much more. And if they have like cloud connectivity, then they can search the internet at much greater efficiency than we could. Why would I have to listen to them? It's like the master slave dynamic. It's just going to spell our, our ruin. So we have to figure out a way that we can. Now, wait, well, why, why are you so, I mean, see, this is why I'm always fascinated with these conversations about uh, robots and humans, because you immediately, put this human dynamic on robots as though if they're in a slave position, somehow they'll feel oppressed. And like, I mean, mm. why, why would, you know, why are you so certain that, I mean, are you well, unable to imagine a being that like has a different sense of being? No, no. Um, I think the reason why I think of it in that way is because I keep reading articles about how we're mimic, we're um, creating artificial intelligence in our image, like the way that machines uh, or even artificial intelligence programs learn, mimicking how the human brain learns. Because we don't necessarily know how to craft a, a consciousness that doesn't at least somewhat mirror our own. And if their consciousness and the way they learn mirrors the way that we learn, you don't think that there's a point where they'll kind of be just a reflection of us and with all of our awfulness? Well, see, yeah, I think that's an arrogant point of view, not from you, but from mm -hmm. humans, from humanity. I think that's an arrogant point of view for us to take because it implies that somehow our reasoning, our cognitive existence is the highest form simply, you know, and it's, it's arrogant and it's also naive on our parts because it is, again, it assumes that we have, we've reached, you know, the pinnacle of cognitive uh, existence. So let's say you, t you have a robot that's imbued with artificial intelligence and it's programmed to kind of have this kind of set of human style morals and, to look at the world through human eyes. Well, if that's true, if it's actually developed 
in that fashion, well, it also stands to reason that it will also grow. It won't remain static. It won't remain in, you know, it won't be held in place by the boundaries of our physical limitations that we have as humans. So if, if that's true, if, if we develop it in, in this kind of, and that, and that's the way humans generally are, you know, are, you know, that's how we, that's how our cognition works is through learning and, and building information and, and piecing, you know, new puzzles together constantly. Well, if that's how these new systems think, I, I would think that they only mirror us as humans for a very brief span of time. And subsequently, they'd most likely turn into something else in terms of how they think and how they look at the world. Uh, it, you know, I often think of it in an insectoid kind of way. And like, mm-hmm. I, I, again, I, I just, I, I think it's very naive of us, arrogant, first arrogant, then naive of us to think that somehow if we create a super intelligence, that it will have any similarity to the human way of thinking. To, to call back to what I was talking about with uh, Oxford, um, there's an entire institute or organization devoted to the study of this area called the Future of Humanity Institute. And it has a number of high level advisors and very, you know, you know, smart thinkers from the science and business community and technology community. And so, you know, these people are thinking about these things. But what's interesting is I feel like a lot of it is based, again, on this premise that once you know, machines or, or computer systems achieve a level of self-awareness, again, that they will somehow think like us. And I think that will, that's our Achilles heel, our arrogance slash naivete. Like the, our Achilles heel is thinking. Yeah. I, I think history will show us that our Achilles heel was thinking that we would know how these systems would think once they achieve a, a, a true level of self-awareness. I mean, I can see what you're saying. And on a logical level, I can accept your argument. But I, I just feel just in my, my cynical gut, they might learn bad behaviors from us. Because let, let's say, you know, animals have a different consciousness than we do. And like, they're not artificial intelligence in any any sense of the form. Here's the thing. We don't know that. We don't know okay. what animal consciousness is. Right. And that's and but see that is actually key to discussing what artificial intelligence and a self awareness of a system you know might be like mm-hmm. because if we can't even figure out how a dolphin thinks of itself or how uh, an octopus thinks of itself mm-hmm. you know animals that are considered on the higher end of intelligence in the animal kingdom we if these things are still a mystery to us it is the height of arrogance to think that simply because we create these artificial intelligence systems that somehow we would be able to predict that once they're self-aware and self-possessed to think on their own that we would be able to predict exactly where they're going okay well um i i hear what you're saying and to an extent, I, I agree with you, but I also uh, want to bring it back to animals in the sense that, you know, animals, especially the intelligent ones like like elephants, elephants are super intelligent. They learn bad humans from good humans, you know, and if they get mistreated by a human, they learn to not trust us and they can be very violent and 
sometimes, you know, retaliate against us. But if there's a good human, you know, they learn maybe to be our friends or we can, you know, have like those cute YouTube videos of elephants being friendly with us or, you know, uh, something great. But then, you know, uh, just to go with the elephant metaphor, there were elephants abused by the circus and there are many, many videos of them going on a rampage and killing people just because they're lashing out against humans who mistreat them. But, there, but there's the arrogance again of viewing everything through the lens of me, 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 meaning me being humans. Uh, you know, think about it like outside of terms of, you know, how they relate to good or bad humans. Let's just put let's just look at them on their own. Forget human interaction with dolphins. How do dolphins interact with each other? We don't know. We think we know we can track their activity, track their mating patterns, uh, track what we think is singing. Is it communication? We have no idea. Are whales singing to each other? Are they speaking to each other? It, we think we know. We're not sure. It's all a mystery. So, I mean, when we talk about how animals interact with us and how they relate to us, I, I think that's kind of like a, a, a tunnel vision. It's it's kind of like a limited view of again, and it's I think it's based on the arrogance of, you know, at least to this point, feeling possibly rightly so that we're on the top of the food chain. Um, I look at the food chain differently just because we could blow up this planet. I don't mm -hmm. know that that necessarily means we're for sure, you know, the highest form of intelligence on this planet. Maybe that sounds crazy, but yeah, if, yeah I think octopuses, they're probably going to give us a run. For well, if we don't if we still don't understand the true nature of intelligence and consciousness. Like it's hard for us, I think, to definitively say who's truly on the top of the food chain. So anyway, so this, so again, so if we get these systems, these artificial intelligence, intelligence systems to the point where they really are thinking on their own and they really do have self-awareness and I'm saying they, it may not be a, they, it might be an, it, it might be a global cloud hive mind that thinks of itself as a one mind. Um, mm. If it gets to that point, I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make is assuming we know how it thinks. I mean, of course, we're going to have to make that assumption just because we'll have no other choice. We're just trying to figure out how to deal with this, uh, this new consciousness. But I, I think it'll be a mistake to, to bank too much on, uh, you know, thinking that this is some sort of, uh, analog to, you know, human intellect and consciousness. I, I think it'll be something completely new and different. And I, I think like a truly self-aware AI that is learning and that has a, a true sense of self, like on an advanced level, not the rudimentary stages, but like on an advanced level, I think it will be as alien to us as a, a, a dolphin, you know, as mm -hmm. a spider, as, you know, a an octopus. It'll be as alien to us. I just got chills because um, what you said, it kind of reminds me of I Am Legend just a little bit. How so? Because, you know, humanity evolves to a different life form and you just have the the main protagonist going about what he thinks is his, his daily life. And it's not until the end that he realizes that he's the myth, that he's the legend and that he is the outdated life form basically exactly oh my god 
that was genius because that's it's it's not in terms of like what that story's about it's not a perfect analogy but in terms of how humans think of other beings that are unlike them it is the perfect analogy it yeah. that twist is you know that's the perfect analogy like that just when you were you know cuz at first when you were saying it i was like i don't know me you know i'm not sure i i i can kind of grasp my mental tenter hooks into what you were saying, but it wasn't until you like were talking about it and fleshing it out that I was like, you know what, this is reminding me a lot of the protagonist. And I, I, for some reason, I forget the name at, at the end where he, just I think it's Robert that, Neville, right? Um, he just realizes that he is the boogeyman and that, you know, he just does not understand their, the way that they work. And, oh, yeah, that just, it just, it clicked like a light bulb in my head. Yeah, Robert Neville is the, he's one of the last people on Earth, and he's trying to, at least in the movie version, he's trying to find a cure for this thing that afflicts the rest of the population and has turned them into, uh, you know, roving hordes of, you know, just like kind of mutated humans. And he thinks he's kind of trying to save humanity and try to cure them. And then it turns out that no, humanity has moved into some new phase and he is actually this monster that is viewed as stalking them. And he looks different and, you know, they're scared of him. They're angry at him, but they're also scared of him. And it's, it's fascinating once you really grasp what's happening. And if you read the book, the original I am legend book, it, um, the, you know, the kind of that lesson is actually put, you know, it's, it's put together even better, um, particularly at the end. I don't want to spoil the ending, but the end really, really brings it home just how uh, a kind of transference of, you know, you know, who's on the top of the food chain, you know, what kind of transference is happening there. And again, you know, so when and if it does happen, you know, again, insects, how much do we know? You know, about what they are or aren't thinking, the nature of their intelligence. Okay, a hive mind. A lot of us think that a hive mind isn't really intelligence. It's just kind of like this instinctual, you know, move, you know, you know, that has that has some sort of life imperative or whatever. But on some level that I think a lot of that perspective is based on, well, they're just different. That's just a different way of mm. thinking. That's not how we think. So that can't be the right way of thinking. And we need to get over that because if we do, <laughs> I mean, it, it, those scientists uh, who said that it'll be 1500 years before we meet intelligent life. Um, well, guess what? If it happens before that, what if we don't recognize that it's intelligent life? What if we meet intelligent life, but that intelligent life has a different way, a different uh, form of cognition. What if they have a hive mind? What if they have uh, something similar to future AI cognition that just seems very alien to us? What what if they're as verbal and communicative as a dolphin, and we think they're just cute and singing when they're actually very much trying to communicate with communicate with us? So I mean, this is all stuff that we have to think about. And I think the best ways to think about this is to use animals uh, and the mystery that surrounds animals. And as you just brought up science fiction, that's like the perfect example of, you know, the arrogance of Robert Neville thinking that mm. he had the answer when in fact he was just 
obsolete. Very, very, very science truth. Science truth. Hashtag science truth. Hashtag science truth. And so, yeah, so we'll uh, keep an eye on Masayoshi's son for the next five years. The Pepper robot is not very impressive, in my opinion, although I haven't created a robot. So who am I uh, to say that it's not impressive? But, uh, you know, compared to the Spot Mini, the Pepper robot is not that impressive. But maybe if you marry uh, the pepper robot with the spot mini, you get something really interesting. Uh, we'll watch him in the next five years and see what he does with regards to the singularity. Uh, it's just fascinating that this concept has gone mainstream because I'm telling you, I've been studying the singularity for many years and this was the outlier of outlier crackpot theories. And now suddenly it's mainstream and everyone is talking about the singularity. So Let's get some more science fiction, uh, singularity science fiction out there and talk about this more and, and conceptualize this a little bit more. What? And that is this week's edition of the Mars Magazine podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, uh, Google Play and SoundCloud. Please do. Do it. Yeah, please subscribe. And with that, we will leave you with thoughts of the singularity and the appropriate terror that you should have uh, moving forward. This has been the Mars Magazine podcast. My name is Adario Strange with Vic Song. And we will see you in the future. Compound X, X, X.